In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. Please be seated. I want to tell a story this morning. Still morning, right? Yep. Of how the Holy Spirit had a surprise in store for the church I used to serve, St. Andrews. I know it's not a cathedral, but it's the same spirit, and, and the story may, may translate. This was a church for which 1959 was the best thing that ever happened to them. But it may also have been one of the worst things that happened to them as well. They had just built a brand new church. Now, they had been around for about 70 years. They'd had a, a lovely but small carpenter gothic church kind of towards downtown. They were now in a new location, and so they had put up a, a new structure. They had put up a big colonial church, which back in the 50s, when uh, you were looking to get a lot of space the, for good value, colonial architecture is a good way to go. So they had this great big new building, and it was full, full. Now, they, they weren't thinking about the fact that they were actually in the midst of a post-war baby boom. And of course, they weren't asking, why, why is the congregation all white? They're asking it now. And they weren't wondering, you know, maybe, maybe it's not such a good thing that only men are working outside the home. They, they weren't thinking about that as so many other churches like that weren't thinking about that. In 1959, they were just riding the wave. It was the best year ever. But in some ways, it became the worst year ever because that became the unflinching standard by which every year afterwards was judged. In fact, it came a standard, it was a standard by which every year before that came to be judged. This, this was a peak, but they rested on that and they didn't notice until far later that that was a moment at which things had started to turn in another direction. And it was around 40 years later in the year 2000 that they really started to notice this and they started to make some changes. One change was a, a, a capital project, their first, I think, since building that building, to renovate their small chapel. They removed pews. They put in hardwood laminate. They removed some walls. It was really lovely. But in that process, they, they opened up something that they didn't plan to. It was um, essentially a plywood sarcophagus. It wasn't a sarcophagus, don't worry. But it was a large box in that shape that was in the behind, only the altar guild went to this place. It was behind uh, the, the wall in front of where the altar was. And in order to move some of these walls, they had to open this thing up. And they had no idea that there was actually anything in it because it, it well, in church life, if, if you have like, if you have something and you say rest a flower on it, it will be there for 30 years. It will become stationary, and you'll forget that it was ever anything else. Well, this was, this was 50 years later, many, you know, multiple generations, 
And they said, okay, well, let's open this thing. Who knows what's in this thing? And when they did, I think there was a gasp in the room as they realized what it was that they had been covering up. What they found was the altar from their original church, from that carpenter Gothic church that just didn't fit in the colonial uh, architecture, which it really didn't, I guess. And so they, it got covered up in the construction. And there it was this warm, hardwood altar with, with beautiful Gothic arches in it that turns out was older than that church itself. And, and the story was that it had been a gift in the late 1800s by a church from Manhattan, in Manhattan. So it was beautiful. It had this incredible story that connected this church in the, in the year 2000 or so to, to its history 100 or 110 years earlier. It had been forgotten. It had been covered up and completely forgotten. The church still had work to do. They still do, as we do. But something in that moment, in that surprise discovery, changed for them. They had found a new symbol, something they were not looking for, a new part of their story. And not only did they, they then rethought their plan, they now shaped this new chapel around this wonderful old treasure. But suddenly there was something larger that happened. There was a shift in their story, and they could see in a way that perhaps they hadn't before that God was indeed doing something new with them. God was up to something there. And the discovery of that altar, which was a legend by the time I got there six or seven years later, was a kind of inflection point in their journey with the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps you've heard that word, inflection point. It's a little bit, it's a little bit buzzy and corporate. I realize it's not a churchy word, but bear, bear with me. The idea behind it is that uh, your life is going forward on one path, generally along a consistent pattern, and then something happens, something that you didn't that either surprises you or or one of those overnight successes that you worked for thirty years to create. All of a sudden, something changes, and that arc moves in a dramatically different direction. Now, there are moments when things like that happen, and they can dramatically change our lives. Some of these moments are wonderful, and some of these moments are not. All of us who have experienced great loss or sudden trauma know that something like that can change our lives forever. So I'm not here to tell you that God makes these things happen for a reason. That's not what we're talking about today. Rather, what I want to say is that there are these moments, and yes, sometimes they are painful, but sometimes they can also be joyful and unexpected, and we can think of them as inflection points, as moments where God showed up in a way we did not expect to redirect our energies and perhaps remind us of why we are here in the first place. Now, 
before we get our hammer and our chisels out and we go up to that altar to find out what might be beneath it, there's nothing beneath it. That's the good altar, I promise. Please don't do that. Rather than that, let's take a look at the epistle to see what Paul might have had to say about discernment and listening for the Spirit. There was great conflict in the Corinthian church, in part because there were competing teachers and each faction had their favorite. Each faction had their guru, all of whom did good things and preached good things, but that wasn't the type of wisdom, Paul was saying, that really transforms hearts. Wisdom and spirit come not from those teachers, but through God alone. Apollos was one of those teachers. Paul asks, who is Apollos? And then he says, and who am I for that matter? Who is Paul? Each of us plants seeds. Each of us tends gardens. Each of us waters. Each of us contributes something vital and valuable. But it is God who gives the growth. What a lesson for the church on annual meeting Sunday. What, an, what a lesson for the church on any Sunday. Whether we're talking about bishops or vestry members, rectors or deans, mission team leaders or head vergers, each of us has a gift to share. But we trust God to give us the growth. And we look to the Holy Spirit to guide us and to challenge us and to surprise us. To surprise us. That, to me, is one of the signs of faithful discernment. When the Holy Spirit shows up, I mean, think about this for a minute. How many times have you prayed prayed to the Holy Spirit and said, I need you now. And the Holy Spirit shows up and said, you rang. Not really. It doesn't really happen. Like If you know how to do that, I would love to borrow the prayer book you are using. And we'll have a sermon all about that. The Holy Spirit shows up in ways that, that we did not expect, that don't look like what we imagine it might, and often doesn't look like what we feared the most either speaking in a language that we didn't invent with an imagination that is far beyond what we have come up with. If this call to grow, and grow can mean many different things, if it is authentic, it will challenge us and redirect us, and it won't quite fit into our preconceived ideas. But most importantly, that call to be the church that call to be people of faith, we will know it is real if it leads us to be known by how we love the world. We will be known by our love. Now, another way we can be known is by our brand. And I just happened to have brought a little bit of our swag here as a reminder that this year we redid all of our branding and our logo Unfortunately, the t-shirt Canon I had hoped for got cut from the budget this year. That would have made for a fun sermon, wouldn't it? But, but what we're doing here is trying, in a, in, a, in a 
perhaps modern way, to share a very ancient story, one that we are to be a house of prayer for all people, and that Trinity Cathedral is to be a sacred place for all people. Back in in 2016, way back then, June Osborne, then the dean of Salisbury Cathedral, wrote that cathedrals have become trusted places in which the whole community gathers, extending a truly Christ-like model of the church as a safe space in which people of all faiths, or none at all, gather to do risky or difficult things. These are not structures primarily for congregational existence, though multiple congregations thrive within them. That's one of the ideas behind mission teams, one of the reasons why we care for one another. But cathedrals belong to the whole community. And so we must be a trusted place. A trusted place to hold the Poor People's Campaign rally here in Cleveland. A trusted place for a hot meal on Sunday. A trusted place to host a senator's roundtable on access to reproductive health care. A trusted place to gather and worship online when the COVID-19 pandemic was at its height. A trusted place to gather once again as we listen for the new thing that God has to say to us. Trinity Cathedral is a sacred place for all people, but it is not just about this place. Our witness is about sharing God's love far beyond those doors so that Cleveland might be a sacred place for all people, so that Northeast Ohio might be a sacred place for all people, so that we might see and honor in all of God's creation the sacredness of God's gift for each of us. You know something we often say, I, I heard this a lot over the years, and I have to admit it, it gets under my skin just a little, when we call Trinity a destination church. Have you ever used, have you heard this one? It kind of it, it gets to my same place as when we call the Episcopal Church Catholic Light. <laughs> um, that's another story too, I can do a good class there. What does that mean? I've heard that phrase many times. What does it mean to call something a destination it's somewhere that you go to, uh, probably out of your way. We've all, most all of us have probably driven some distance past other places where we could have stopped because there's something that draws us here. That's good. We're here to experience something. But then we go home, right? That's fine, but it needs to be more. Our real mission is to make this city and this region a sacred place for all people. And to get there, we need to start seeing Trinity not as a destination, but as a pathway, a springboard, a hub, a mode of accessing and celebrating the sacredness of God's world, a sacred place that lifts up the holiness and dignity of every human being. So this year, we did the logo thing, we did the branding thing, we did the swag thing. But in that process, I, I remembered a truism about communications. And that's that a brand 
is not actually something that we create. A brand is not what we say about ourselves. It is not something that we put on our website. A brand is what people say about us. Our brand is what other people say about us when we are not in the room. In the late 1960s, then Roman Catholic priest Peter Schultes, he later left the priesthood, became a leading writer of business books. He wrote a song that figured out that brand bit. This is the late 60s, long before it was cool to talk about it. He wrote a song that I think many of us all know, one that asks, not who do we say that we are, but how are we known? Will they know us by, by our proper theology or even by our soaring architecture? Will they know us by our post-war growth or perhaps even our post-pandemic growth? Will they know us by what Apollos taught us or by what Paul taught us? No. No. The song reminds us that they will know we are Christians by how we live and who we are and how we love. They will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love, by our love. They will know that we bear the imprint of God in the ways that we love the world, humbly, hopefully, and wholeheartedly. Amen.